Hello listener, just a little heads up about this episode. We bought some new recording equipment to make editing easier on the back end, but unfortunately the XLR box that I bought has a fault with the headphones. I was outputting the audio incorrectly. This led to me recording the audio at too high gain and subsequently had it set too high for the post-game discussion. I fixed it in post to the best of my ability and we realised the mistake before we do the final analysis section. But just a little heads up that the quality in the middle of the episode is going to take a dip for a solid hour. We are sorry and we hope you can enjoy the show regardless. Thanks. Friends, citizens, listeners, welcome to Starter Quest, a podcast with classic video games through the eyes of the Stone Age. This is episode 13, where we build the Age of Empires 2. I am your host, a man who relies on the power of priests way too much, Alessandro Crolla, alongside my wonderful ally who doesn't notice the battering rams outside her gates and the star of this podcast. Jen Hughes. I think I would notice your battering ram against my gates. You'd think that, but then you're going to be surprised. (laughs) How's it going? It's going good, how about you? Surviving in the heat of the summer. I have been way too exhausted to finish editing the Pink Shrite episodes. I'm just doing this part now while I'm still doing that. Yeah, it's been a surprisingly hot summer for two weeks. Yeah, we're now in the wet season. Yeah. So, what have you been playing lately? I've been playing Street Fighter 6. Yes, we finally broke the Sims loop. I mean, I had to break it because I was up until like 3 or 4 a.m. playing it at some points, feeling I'd like not really much of a life, so I had to give it up. And then that staying up till 3 or 4 a.m. playing video games moved over to Street Fighter 6. You've not really broken the addiction as you have just moved on to a stronger form of smack. <laughs> I really, really enjoy this game. Yeah, you've really gotten into the campaign mode. Yeah, and I actually finished the story mode last week. Mm -hmm. And I'm still playing it because there is a side quest in the game where you have really high-level fighters that you've Mm -hmm. got to fight. I want to beat them all. We covered Street Fighter 2 in an episode of the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's very different to that one. For one, Street Fighter 2 doesn't have a story mode. But with this game, you get to create your own character. There are so many memes surrounding the create your own character. Oh, there's a great subreddit. R slash SF6 avatars. Yeah. Some of the creations are incredible. And some of the creations are also deeply cursed. It doesn't really matter what you create. The starter coach, Luke, says, Huh, yeah, pretty photogenic. <laughs> This is the kind of acceptance that we need in our society, but it is also kind of funny. What makes this game so much better than Street Fighter 2 for you? Well, for one, being able to create your own character Mm -hmm. and being able to pick and mix and match the different fighting styles. Mm -hmm. You get a lot more variety and you can tailor it to suit you. Yeah, so you can take moves off different characters to put on your OC. Yeah. Also, the inputs are a lot more simplified. Mm-hmm. In Street Fighter 2, if you wanted to do any like really cool moves, you had to learn some combo moves. Mm-hmm. You had to train me through that. But with Street Fighter 6, it's a lot, lot easier. Yeah, you just bind it to, say, forward triangle. 
Yeah. Instead of like the semicircle triangle it was in the last game. What have you been playing? Well, it's been a busy month for me. Mm-hmm. Final Fantasy Sixteen's came out, and I literally went from not giving a flying monkeys about this game to being deeply gripped by it. Yeah, it looks really good. It is an example of an actual demo that worked to make me interested in the game. Yeah, I watched you play the demo and was like instantly hooked. It's like, yes, it had that kind of magic that Final Fantasy VII had. I have to basically avoid looking at the screen when you're playing it because I want to play it myself. And the final game I want to talk about, which is a game we had a quick jaunt with the other day, Yandere AI Girlfriend Simulator. Yeah, that was an experience. You were trying to convince your girlfriend to let you out of the house and she is programmed to make sure you stay in the house no matter what you do. Yeah. The game is coded through chat GPT. You actually hold down the button and speak real words into this game and chat GPT will then generate a response. Why is she living in a three-bedroom apartment by herself? I say by herself, you're trapped in there with her. Yeah, there's two people in a three-bedroom apartment and one of the bedroom has twin beds, which is ours. We have the twin beds, which is fine. It's not fine. I'm stuck in a house with a yandere girlfriend, but okay, cool. Yeah, it's an interesting game as you try to logic an AI into letting you leave the house. Trying to play mind games to ensure your psycho girlfriend lets you leave your own house. And she'll stab you if you get aggressive or if you bolt for the door. Yeah, yeah, you have to, like, play it coy and water her up a little bit. And even then, you don't know if it's actually going to work. Yeah, it's very strange. I got her to do it purely out of this niceness and try to be all sweet about it. When she opened the door, I actually stopped and kept asking her, do you want to come with me? No, I don't want to come with you. I'm fine here. Do you want me to get you anything while I'm out? Yeah, can you get me a pastry? But yeah, sure, I'll bring back a tray of donuts. And we were having this really weird, real conversation that I've had with you in the past. Yeah, except I let you leave the house. Yeah, you only stab me after I come back. <laughs> yeah, if you don't bring me a tray of donuts. <laughs> Because she's an anime girlfriend, she's like made to be quite young looking and skinny and petite. So I asked her what age she was, because mm-hmm. that's never really said in the game. And she said something like, I'm 18 in cat years, but I'm 24 in human years. I think I said, wait, hang on, the math isn't right with that. <laughs> and she had to correct herself. And she's like, oh, um, yeah, I'd actually be 180 something in cat years. Oh dear, silly me. So I tried asking her again. The other time she said, I'm 18 forever, but age is just a number. And I'm thinking, age is a very important number. (laughs) And it was just, it got like quite awkward. She's like, oh, (laughs) I felt like, there's something like just really weird about the whole thing. Well, the funniest thing I did was that I tried to convince her that she couldn't have a relationship with me because I was a 13-year-old boy. Oh, God, that was terrible. Watching you try that. And you could see her getting more and more panicky, like, Ugh, fuck! (laughs) I'm programmed to keep you in my house as my boyfriend, but you are a child, what do I do? You could see the thing malfunctioning. It was an absolute shame. I felt so bad for her. Shall we get off the subject of murderous girlfriends and get onto the subject of murderous empires? Yeah, sounds good. Yes, so we're playing Age of Empires 2 this time. Now, I'm going to have to ask, what do you know about this game? So, um, very little. Mm-hmm. My brother plays Civilization on the Xbox 
Right, that is not this game. No, no, I know, but it's around that genre. Mm-hmm. He played it a lot as a teenager, but still dips into it every now and then. And my mum's ex also played it in the PC. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one he played, but he spent a lot of time on it. Also, someone donated Medieval Total War into my work. I work at a local charity shop, which takes a lot of like media, like games and music and everything just about. I mentioned Age of Empires to my colleagues and uh, it rang a bell. So I'm assuming all of these games are within the genre. Oh yeah, we're definitely going to have to approach Total War at some point. Yes. Probably Shogun. We'll see what happens and how we got on with this one. Mm-hmm. I think I know the genre. What's the genre? It's real-time strategy games. Yes. Now, as I said in our outro to Phoenix Wright, we came across this format in our Final Fantasy VII episode, if you remember. Oh, yeah. It was the Condor Mountain game. Yeah. Where you defended a big mountain and its town from an army that's coming to take the materia from the, the big condor bird on top of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Now that's a very simplified RTS, but it is part of the system. How would you describe it, just for anyone who didn't listen to Final Fantasy VII? Very stressful. <laughs> it was the most stressful part of the game, and maybe one of my least favourite parts of the game. And that's a simplified version. How do you explain the gameplay, though? How would you describe a real-time strategy game? So, a real-time strategy game is one where you, well strategize in real time Mm -hmm. you strategize like war or building a civilization or a zoo or a theme park or an aquarium or a dino park or a nuclear bunker world but it's not i don't think it's real time real time but it has its own real time not all those are real-time strategy games right a real-time strategy game usually you were right when you're talking about commanding an army. A real-time strategy game is always a game where you have to look at collecting resources, building your faction, recruiting troops, and then laying siege to your opponents. Oh my god, is Black and White a real-time strategy game? Yes. Oh, I played Black and White when I was a kid. I only made it through the tutorial mode, and then the tutorial god got totaled, and I got too stressed out and I couldn't keep playing the game. I think the thing about a real-time strategy game is by real-time, you cannot pause it. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. So, because there's no pausing, then everything happens in real-time. Not always. Civilization plays in turns, but every turn happens simultaneously. So, everything's happening at the same time. It's still the same idea. Yeah, my brother has said that civilization is a massive time sink. It is, and I didn't want to start that deep in the pool. Yeah, yeah. Also, civilization is really difficult. As far as I've heard, like sometimes you can get famines and natural disasters that just appear out of nowhere. You could be the best ruler ever, everything can go really well, and then BAM! Drought. For no reason. I mean, there's never really a reason for a drought, but it will just happen. It's something that we will get to, because I do want to play civilization at some point. Mm. But the one I picked here is very easy to play, mm-hmm. and is a great starter RTS. Good. If we're not counting the Fort Condor game as my start in real-time strategy games. So, do you know anything about this game, then? Uh, I mean, you mentioned the broken power of priests a lot. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, 
the priests in the game must be very overpowered and a bit of a life hack in ruling your civilizations, which sounds quite apt. You mentioned the broken power of priests in the Mm -hmm. outro and then mentioned the priests again in the start, which makes me think that we're managing the pocket realm of Craggy Island. Or everyone is either a priest, nun, old person, or both. And we've got to use the money that's just resting in our accounts. <laughs> Sadly not, no. Uh, so there's going to be no like little pop-ups of Mrs. Doyle going, Tea, fathers! <laughs> just incessant pop-ups. Go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> Unfortunately not, no. The priest thing is... I am leaning a bit heavily on the priest thing because I don't want to reveal anything else about the game. Mm-hmm. So other than my reference to the priest then, you know nothing about this game? Uh, no. Do you know who made it? Humans? Mm, I think they are, yeah. Yeah, I think they're humans. Uh, Bethesda? No, not Bethesda. <laughs> Nintendo? They made something that you talked about earlier. Did they make Street Fighter 6? <laughs> no, I haven't used another Capcom game. Uh, Ion Storm? <laughs> no, you're not going to get it. That's I'm, not, I'm not going to get it. But yeah, it's a bigger company than you might expect. I mean, I've got a feeling me trying to name game developers who might have worked in this game is going to be a bit like when Mrs. Doyle tried to guess Todd Omptious's name. <laughs> <laughs> okay then, so do you have any idea who we're playing as? What's in this game? Who are the characters? Uh, Julius Caesar? <laughs> Richard the Lionheart the First? <laughs> Gandhi? Mm, not that one, but you're not too far off with the others. Uh, me, a warlord who also owns a dinosaur park? <laughs> Only if we turn on the cheats. Oh, there's cheats? There's always cheats, babe. There's always cheats, that's very true. I'll come back to cheats. <laughs> So then, do you have any kind of barometer of how you're going to take to this one? I'm expecting to learn the horrors of war from a top-down perspective. Because mm-hmm. war is bad. As are top-down perspectives. Depending on your top. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm also going to expect some natural disasters, like in Civilization. Um, I'm also going to expect... Having to interact with other rulers, them declaring war on me for no reason at all. I'm hoping for some historical figures. That would be interesting. I think you can basically rewrite history. I am just going by what I know about civilization and assuming it's the same thing. I don't know how we're going to get on with this. Now, I just want to pull the curtain back a little for the listeners here and talk about how we design this podcast. I had a list of games that I've had since the end of 2022 of the games I wanted to cover in 2023. For the most part, we've hit them all and we're on track to complete the list, except for the fact I changed the horror game for Halloween. Yeah. So I've had since the start of the year to do Age of Empires 2. And I'm not going to lie, it's been the one that I've been dreading the most. Yeah? Why is that? I think by now, 13 episodes in, we've developed a bit of a formula for this podcast. Yeah. Especially in the second half. We always have a big long chat about the playthrough, which I fill out by going through the game and trying to ask about specific moments, characters, opponents, 
whatever I can kind of make it suitable. It was the games of Kirby. It was the chapters of Phoenix Wright. It was the zones of Sonic. I've always got something to base it around. This is the first episode we've ever done. I have absolutely no idea how we're going to approach the playthrough recap. Mm -hmm. Absolutely none. With the fighting game episode, I wasn't too sure what we're doing with that one. But I had this idea to at least try maybe going through our days playing the game and tell our story in real time. Yeah. In the end, I found, no, just go in depth on the characters and that works better. With this game, I don't think that approach will work very well. Why? The different factions aren't very memorable. Really? Okay. So I have absolutely no idea how the second half will go. I'm staying deeply into the abyss on what we're doing with this one. Yeah. My hope is that I come up with something between now and when we actually get to the second half and we have something worth talking about that's fun to listen to. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Now, I know the obvious question that people might have right now is then why bother doing this game at all? But I think that me being clueless on how to approach it is exactly why we need to do this game. Why is that? We need to try and come up with an idea to make games like this interesting. I already want to do Civilization and a Total War game. We have to decide now how to make those compelling to listen to. And also, if this podcast progresses, I want to do sandbox games, rhythm games, puzzle games, racing games, simulators. That could be as equally difficult to recap as this game. So my thinking is, if I come up with something for this game, it might help me structure future games that don't have a single focused story narrative to go through. Yeah, yeah. Overcome the mountain, as it were. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Or, at the very least... It's very lucky this is our 13th episode, as it might end up coming out very cursed. It'll make for an interesting ride, hopefully. Admittedly, though, for a game to approach this with, this is a good choice for me. I loved this game as a kid. Mm -hmm. I think I got the first one from my dad. He used to come back with PC games that someone would lend him in his chip shop. Mm -hmm. He'd take the disc back, install it, and then give them back the disc. People like my dad are the reason why they invented DRM. (laughs) <laughs> what's drm it's what makes stop people doing that with just share a desk only one person has to buy it yeah so basically if you were playing a pc game or something you'd have to install it on the pc but also you could only play it if the disc was in your pc exactly yeah so systems like that were invented because of my dad yeah sorry gaming <laughs> but yeah i installed it i loved it so excited for the sequel that my dad actually bought me that one he bought a game yeah as much as I like the first one, it's the second one that I have the most memories of playing. Me and my friend Oni would just sit side by side, strategize together on what we're doing. Usually I'd be the one moving the mouse and he'd be talking about what we should do. Two we'd heads get... of the Hydra? Yeah, just two kids try to beat all the empires. Yeah. This is another PC game, but instead of playing this in my office that we did for Doom and Pukey Nuki, <laughs> we're going to play this on our laptops. Our laptops? Yes. Laptops, plural. You're going to have a copy on your laptop. I'm going to have a copy of mine. We can play on a LAN if we like. But we could also rule our own kingdoms. King and queen together taking over the world. Or we could also just fight. Or we could also war against each other. We might do that. Again, I have no idea what the second half is going to be. So what we do is kind of up in the air. So it's which one of us goes mad with power first. I'm going to guess it's you. (laughs) 
we're playing the HD edition that came out 10 years ago. We could do the definitive edition that came out recently, but it's all 3D. It's a bit too shiny and new. Whereas I feel the HD edition is more true to the original game. It's got all the jank, but sharper. Yes. Now somehow, even without a structure, I've managed to chisel out some rules of gameplay. Number one, we are not here to only complete the campaign. Right. The campaign mode is the set mode of the game. And we're going to do a few of them, especially the first one, which is a tutorial. I think you'll particularly love. Right. And maybe the second one as well, which is quite good. But let me put it this way. In all my years of playing the game, I've never completed all the campaigns. So you're setting me a challenge. If you want to, you can. But I think it also might take up quite a while to do it. Yeah, yeah. I'll see how I enjoy it first. Rule two. We are going to try a few skirmishes. With Jen trying different factions to get an idea as to how the clans differ in what ways yeah yeah rule three now this is one that is a bit contentious contentious this game has some very handy cheats we've not resorted to using cheats on any of the games we've played so far not even the ones i found horrendously difficult but there's a part of me that wants to be more relaxed to letting them be used for this game I mean, put it this way, I use quite a bit of cheats in The Sims 2. It makes gameplay, like, that bit more fun. I'm not the biggest opponent to cheating. Yeah. At least in offline games. Yeah, I mean, if you're cheating in speedrunning, that is pretty rubbish. Yeah, you deserve the Carl Jobs video shaming you. (laughs) Yeah. Outside of environments where you are live competing with real people... Cheats exist to modify the difficulty for a player. Yeah, we've had to use things to modify difficulty for me. Like, the Switch has got a really handy rewind setting and save states, which is for quality of life for your players. Yeah, in fact, that's probably the closest we've came to cheating is using those functions. Yeah. So, if I feel like you're super struggling, especially with the resource management side, we might use a few... We might get some hands from a little Robin Hood here or there. Mm. If we do, we'll be clear and honest about it in our second half. For now, though, you have your history textbook. Yes. And you have learned what Six Semper Tyrannus means. What? Are you ready to live the Age of Empires to... Tally-ho! All right, let's get started. Welcome back. What are your immediate thoughts on this game? A lot of fun. You actually enjoyed this one? I really enjoyed this one, which is surprising because I'm not really a fan of war games. I am really glad to hear that. I mean, I don't really ever want to go into one of these episodes not expecting you to enjoy a game, but at the same time, it's always one of these worries I have. As fun as that Duke Nukem episode was, I don't want to always come to the table with negativity. Yeah, yeah, because it will get... I'm in a Discord server with a bunch of music reviewers and they say that the worst lists are always the hardest. They have to listen to music they don't like to give an informed opinion on it. Hmm. As fun as it is to rag on these things, 
there's a bunch of them that have just decided to not bother with worse lists and just stick to best lists and videos about songs they like because it's more fun for them. Thankfully, we can avoid that in this episode. Mm. Yes. In regards to the first half about structure, I've came up with something which is going to involve us shifting our usual gameplay chat to a bit later in the episode. So for now, I just want to ask you, how was this game to play on a mechanical level? Very fun to play mechanically. There are a lot of moving pieces, so I highly recommend you do the tutorial first before mm-hmm. you start on skirmishes. Yeah. Standard games are your skirmishes where it's basically just free play. Mm-hmm. And then there are the campaigns, which we'll also get into a little bit more later. Yeah, they're more kind of set stories with... Very set objectives. Yeah, yeah. We'll approach that later in the episode. I just want to kind of ask you, how do you play this real-time strategy game? So you have a map. Mm -hmm. You see everything from a top-down view. It's not entirely bird's eye. I think the correct term is isometric. Yeah, that's it. It's isometric. Mm -hmm. And everything looks quite small. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to click and move or click and drag select multiple people and then move across Mm -hmm. and you start off with villagers and a scout yes you are in the dark age Mm. in a standard game the map you're in you have to explore it yourself and fill the darkness out with areas of the map you can see click your little scout or whoever and right click point you want them to go to as they walk, the map will light up. Yeah. You gather your resources because everything costs resources. Gold, wood, food, and stone. Mm-hmm. Mostly everything costs a mixture of these, but some are exclusively one or the other. Mm-hmm. And you need a certain amount of these resources to advance to the different ages, which helps you unlock more stuff to make your army and your empire stronger. You see more map terrain than you do units, like villagers and soldiers or cavalry or weaponry or whatever. How do you gather those resources? You use your villagers to gather resources. Okay, and give us more about the villagers. The five you start off at the beginning of the game, you can use to either build buildings, Mm -hmm. gather stone or golden mines, Mm -hmm. cut wood, you can kill livestock, fish, forage, hunt, or make fields. Mm-hmm. With the town centre, the little building you get at the centre of your town, you can create villagers, mm-hmm. you can research different things. Yeah, we'll come back to the subject of researching. And you can move up the different ages. Mm-hmm. So just levelling up, essentially. Your first level, the Dark Age. Then move into the Feudal Age, Mm -hmm. where you can build walls and watchtowers and stuff. The Castle Age, where you can build your castles. And then the Final Age is the Imperial Age. Yeah. The Imperial Age is prime concrete era. Mm. So early parts of the game are all about gathering resources and building the right buildings in your town. Then, you know, you've got your recruitment parts of the game where... You want to build your army and your weaponry and everything like that. Once you get to the Imperial Age, you can unlock more and more upgrades for the different parts of your military. The strategy throughout the whole game is a balancing act between making sure you have enough resources 
your town is well defended, unlocking the different upgrades, getting through the ages as quickly as possible before your opponents do, and being ready to defeat your opponents. That's a great overview of the game. How was it for you to do all this stuff? Quite stressful and intense at first. Mm -hmm. Especially when people started invading and I didn't know what to do about it. That was stressful. Having my town invaded, that little like trumpet sound to signal that I'm being attacked still kind of fills me a bit with dread, especially considering that every time I'm invaded, especially in the early stages of the game, just convinced that like my game is over. I'm goosed. But as you play more of the game, you kind of understand like when you know you've been defeated and when you know you can salvage what you've got mm. and fight back. Before we go into detail of how each skirmish goes, let's go through history and design. The Age of Age of Empires starts with a man called Tony Goodman. He is the head of Ensemble Corporation, a business software creator, and has just grown the business into a Fortune 500 company. Now he could try to aim higher, it's only 1994, and the PC market is still in its pioneer years, but there are other things on his mind. It's coming up for Christmas. A season to remember being a kid. I probably put some Christmas music under this to set the scene. Right, okay. <laughs> this reminds him of his own childhood wishes. The ones he would write to Santa when he was young. Though his biggest wish is the one he never got. The one that stayed with him. To make the world's greatest games. He was a naive child then, but now he's an adult and the head of a Fortune 500 company. So in January 1995, he forms a side project in his business called Ensemble Studio. Probably. I may have made up the bit about Christmas and the child's wish thing for dramatic effect. Right, okay. <laughs> but the rest is all true. Even the bit about making the world's greatest games is a direct quote from the man in the book Gamers at Work. Nice! <laughs> I didn't know that. So yes, he is deciding he's going to make the games he always wanted to make as a side project in his already successful business software company. Ensemble Corp co-founder John Boog Scott and Tony's brother Rick Goodman are also co-founders of this new game studio with him. But the fourth founder is the one who would be the most interesting, Bruce Shelley, a man who had previously worked for Micropause. There, he was one of the co-developers of a little game series called Civilization, alongside Sid Meier. Yes. I don't know what the story is of him leaving. I would point out that Civilization is more commonly known as Sid Meier's Civilization. Oh, is it another case where one man's name is on the poster of something and he gets most of the credit for it? I can't say for sure. Not saying anything that's Sid Meier at all, it's just a very common theme in a lot of things that where it's one person's vision on a medium that is a lot of people working on it. We'll save the chat about civilization for another day. Yes. Mostly because I haven't done that research yet. But also because uh, I may want to play it in the future. Even though they had the money behind them already, they still sought a publisher to help them fund the game's creation and found aid in the arms of PC's rising powerhouse of Microsoft. Oh, right. That was the bigger company I was talking about in our first half. So you didn't know that this was a Microsoft exclusive. I mean, a lot of PC games I would have just assumed they would be, but that's because when you think of PC game, 
I don't know about you, but I usually think of Microsoft as opposed to anything else. Well, this was an era we still had things like the Amiga and the IBMs. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Deep Blue people. Yeah. Yeah. PC was not strictly a Windows thing only, but getting games like this was part of the Windows plan to have Microsoft be seen as a gaming platform like the Amiga. Was this a part of their Embrace, Extend, Extinguish plan? Yes, it was. Ooh. This is also part of the same plan which led to Doom 95. Oh yeah, where like Bill Gates is a Doom monster. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. See, it's very interesting. They have published this game about becoming a very strong empire and crushing all the opponents while also being an empire that's built itself up, recruited all the games and stuff, and then conquered the computer game market. (laughs) I don't know, there is something rather poetic about that. There is, there absolutely is. (laughs) Very fitting. Back at Ensemble Studios, they wanted to make a game in the same mould as Civ, since they've got the Civ guy on board. Oh yeah, exactly, yeah. But something more akin to more notable RTS games of the time... For example, the Command and Conquer Red Alert series. Oh yeah, is that the one with Tim Curry saying, I'm going to the one place uncorrupted by capitalism! <laughs> Space! That's three. <laughs> and we will come back to that series on a future episode. Honestly, if it's all like that one clip, then I am so looking forward to it. Put a pin on Tim Curry. <laughs> But yeah, their system of collecting resources, training up troops, and making your tactics on the fly was going to be incorporated into their game. This would form Dawn of Man, but they would later change that to Age of Empires. Right. As you said earlier, in Age of Empires 2, it spans from the Dark Age to the Imperial Age. In Age of Empires 1, you went through the Stone Age, Tool Age... Iron Age, and finishing in the Bronze Age. Oh, really? Yes. Now, functionally, they're very similar. Yeah. But that's how they made their game about the ancient era. The first game did well and good, and it got them established, but they wanted to go bigger with this next installment. Plus, they'd already agreed to make a sequel of Microsoft. Mm. Your very strong and powerful ally has asked you to do something, so, I mean, you've got to do it. Oh, you know they're going to invade your business. Yeah. They send in their army of monks to convert the staff. Yes! After one failed attempt to add more complexity to the game, it ended up not being as fun, so they scrapped that whole build. They restarted the project and focused solely on the fun factor. The plan was to keep the gameplay the same, but inject it with layers upon layers of quality of life fixes. Right. They completely overhauled the enemy AI to make it more fun to fight, upgraded the pathfinding, because there was a problem in the old game that your troops would just beeline where you clicked and wouldn't quite work out how to get around like trees and obstacles in the way. Yeah, because trees and forests are just wall. Until you chop them down, yeah. Yeah, until you chop them down, but they're basically just wall. And even have armies move in formation. Oh yeah, that's a really handy thing. Yeah, in the old game they were just this massive rabble. Yeah, controlling one of those things I'm sure would have been quite hard, let alone an entire army. And with this being a sequel, there's also just the more factor. More troops, more buildings, more research topics. Being able to queue up troop creation 
being able to add hills and cliffs to maps. Adding a button which allows you to protect villagers during a raid. Yeah, that's really handy as well, especially when you're near the start of the game and you can't afford to spam a whole bunch of new villagers. And of course, just general fixes to the back end. This made the game not only run faster, but also easier to update if you want to do any changes to the multiplayer mode. So in what way was the enemy not fun to fight in Age of Empires 1? They were just a bit too simple with their tactics. Ah, a bit too predictable. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole counterbalance to what troops you fight with who. Yeah. In this game, if you've, for example, built walls around your town, they will know to create some siege weaponry to go and destroy your walls. Yeah, which I can imagine, like, if you've got an AI that is a bit stupid and doesn't think to set up siege weaponry when they see some walls, I can imagine that must feel like... You know, you're kind of shooting fish in a barrel. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, players who are wanting a bit more of a challenge, so they can feel a bit less guilty about steamrolling their opponent, who is less powerful than them intellectually. Having that would be a good thing. I mean, even, you know, there did come a point when I was graduating from easiest to standard where I thought, oh, I feel really mean invading their town. I'm just mm-hmm. going to leave them. <laughs> Because, I mean, look at them, it's tiny, they've got no army, they've got nothing. I'm just going to leave them. <laughs> Age of Empires 2 released on September 27th, 1999, and went on to be the best-selling game in the series. But like, even after? None of the sequels are outsold Age of Empires 2, if you factor in, like, the HD edition and the Definitive Edition. Yeah, I have got lots of great things to say about the Definitive Edition. Actually, that's something we probably should explain. We started with the HD edition. Yeah, you said it was a lot closer to the original game than the Definitive Edition. It was. It's more visually closer to the original game. Right. And we used the HD edition to play the tutorial, a lot of our early skirmishes, and our first campaign. Yeah. However, while we were playing those, the summer Steam sale went live. And during the sale, the Definitive Edition was on sale for like £3.80. Yeah, that is a steal. Since we were just using the HD edition I had on my account, I thought it would be so much easier if you bought your own copy on your Steam account, which literally only has, like, Age of Empires, both the Portal games. Her story and The Sims 4. I've got maybe 20 hours at the absolute maximum of Sims 4 on Steam. But, yeah, my Steam library is pretty minuscule. Yeah, so we bought you your own copy. And that's what we ended up using when we went for multiplayer. Yeah. Stephen Rippey served as the composer of the game and returned from the first Age of Empires game to work for this one as well, with help from his brother David Rippey, his brother Chris Rippey, and not his brother Kevin McCullen. <laughs> There's an emphasis on era-appropriate music, not entirely played like ye olde pieces, but more incorporating things like woodpipes, organs, light drumming just to kind of give it that baseline of a medieval feel. Yeah. Nothing flashy, not there to distract, but more just to set the mood while you're strategizing on screen. Yeah. It's hard to stop and properly appreciate the music. It's not there to be noticed. Still, it is very evocative, and there are some pieces where you associate it with different parts in your game. For example, there's one track, Roar Basura Basura, mm-hmm. which I associate with... I've gathered an ungodly amount of wood to build my navy with. 
and just spamming all the fire ships and galleons and cannon galleons or whatever I have access to in that civilization, putting them in a staggered formation to make them broader and more intimidating. I'd like, you know, click to tell my navy where to go along the coastline of the map and see what my enemies have built there that they can destroy. So I always associate that with these parts of the game. And I know that different people, depending on how quickly they get from each thing and what they're doing in the game, will associate different tracks with different actions. Mm-hmm. The one I've got written down in my notes is the song Tea Station, which again, me saying the name of the song will not make it easily noticeable. Thankfully, I'm using it as a bed right now for the listener. But when you sit down and listen to it, there's a really beautiful elegance to the piece. Nothing too semi or repetitive more trying to draw your attention away from the work at hand. It helps you feel like you're constantly moving forward with the task that you've set yourself, be it coordinating villagers, readying your armies, shoring up your defences. The music is there just to give it some texture. It's not there to distract you. I always associate that song with fishing. It's around my gathering food stage where I'm trying not to use up too much wood. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time I like playing coastal type maps, so my villagers will be lined up the riverbed or the coast or a pond or something, throwing in their nets and then pulling it back. I always associate that song with that. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris Rippy is also the sound director for the game. Ah, right. Sound effects in this game do have a real iconic appeal. Mm. It is a sound effect people will instantly associate with the Age of Empire series. You've obviously heard us do the Town Invasion theme earlier in the episode. But each building, for example, has its own sound effect when you click it, giving the player an audio cue as to what each building does because they can visually change from civilization to civilization. My favourite one is the university one. The little harp lick it makes. Oh, it makes my ears so happy. I don't know why. For me, I do love the drumming of the barracks. Yeah, yeah. It has this real proper let's get ready for war sound to it. So no matter how the barracks looks, it will always play that sound effect. On top of that, each faction has their own unique sound library based on the ancient language of that civilization. The Japanese speak Japanese. The French speak French. And the British speak Old English. The kind of old that comes with an E. Yes. I love the Britain's sound library because it is basically just English. Mm -hmm. But... It just sounds like it's someone from the border speaking, like borders of Scotland. Yeah, I mean, it goes for the proper Old English dictionary. So they use older terms like mandatum to mean command. Mandatum? Mm-hmm. Like mandate, basically. Yeah. Mandatory. But then there's other times where the words are very similar to what we use in modern English. Whenever they start fishing, they use the term fisk. Fisk. Yeah. And whenever you click a unit, sometimes we'll just go ready. Ready. But I think the one you love the most is the construction voice line. I love it so much, it's so cute. Bolden. Bolden. It just really does sound like someone from Dumfries or surrounding areas saying building. <laughs> it really does. Bolden. It sounds like saying Bolden in a very like Scottish accent. You're Davy. What are you doing with all those bricks there? Bolden. I adore it. <laughs> Every civilization has something similar. So I wonder if 
say you get a Korean or Japanese player who listen to the sound effects on their civilization and have a giggle because it sounds cute. I wouldn't really know. That'd be really interesting to hear about. If you do speak other languages, please write in and let us know. Please do. I love all that sort of stuff. Kogo! Kogo! Let's start our playthrough discussion. We started this episode going very high level. This is where we're going to explain how to play Age of Empires in a deeper, more direct state. We're going to structure this by talking about the tutorial scenario first, then use our time doing skirmishes to go very in-depth the game of Age of Empires, and then we're going to finish up with our time with the first scenario campaign. Those scenario campaigns each tell the tale of a famous historical figure as we recreate their lives using the game engine to complete the famous battles and journeys. Now, in this game, you're going to get Saladin, Genghis Khan, Barbarossa, but Jen needed to learn how to play the game first, though. So we started with the tutorial campaign, The Story of William Wallace. Okay. Yes, we're getting Scottish history as our tutorial. Which I was so happy about. I knew you would be. I didn't want to say in our intro, I knew you would love this. I loved it, yeah. We're getting Scottish history told with comically bad accents. We are without a leader. The dead king of Scotland has no heir. War creeps in from the south, where Edward Longshanks, the avaricious king of England, has returned from successful campaigns to conquer Wales and France. As Longshanks turns his attention to Scotland, the shadow of fear settles across the highlands. The English have thousands of Welsh longbowmen, hundreds of knights on horseback, and dozens of siege weapons. We Scottish have a rabble of untrained soldiers who do not even know how to march in a straight line. We must act soon if we have any chance of resistance. We need to forge an army by any means necessary. Oh, it was absolutely glorious. <laughs> just sounds like someone putting on a very Scottish accent. Feast your eyes on William Wallace's five-foot sword. <laughs> it's so charming. A Scottish person did not set foot anywhere near that recording booth. And it is so funny. Edward Longshanks, the avaricious king. I have no idea what he's doing. <laughs> that is why we had to play the HD edition. It has the original audio files. The definitive edition has re-recorded it with a real Scotsman. It is nowhere near as fun. We are here for bad voice acting, like we do with the Resident Evil. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. He sure did put some gusto into his Scottish accent for his narrating. With all that being said, it's still the case that we're getting William Wallace as our tutorial. Guess which major motion picture came out four years before this game? And it's deeply historically inaccurate. Yes, yes it is. They somehow portray the Battle of Stirling Bridge without actually using a bridge. Yeah, I can understand that it might have been budget constraints, but like, we've not had huge amounts of stories talking about our history. I've not seen any examples of other films made about it. Mm -hmm. This was their first shot, and they decide to skimp out on the bridge from the battle of Stirling Bridge. Now, there's other things that we could talk about. We could be here all day, but... We will say that despite everything, this is slightly more historically accurate than the motion picture starring Mel Gibson and his blue face paint. 
Yeah, this isn't really going for historical accuracy at this point either, sadly. Exactly. We are here to learn how to play the game. So while all the levels are kind of written around this idea of leading the Scots into battle, for the most part it's just showing you how you move your troops, how you build buildings, how you set your villagers to gather resources, how you move through the ages, that type of stuff. Like, it is a tutorial where William Wallace is around. You say that, but you don't see Wallace until, like, the final part. He's he's there, he's present in the narrative. You're going to see him at some point. I mean, at least they put a bridge in the Battle of Sterling map. Yeah. The very first level is teaching you how to move your troops from A to B. They decided to frame that as, yes, you have an army that can barely walk in a straight line. And I'm like, thanks. Can't exactly say about incompetence considering that accent, but okay, sure. Clearly whoever wrote that has seen us play football. (laughs) Again, not entirely accurate. As much as we had like decades of peace, it is likely that our troops wouldn't have been experienced. To say that we didn't have any at all is like a bit rubbish. I just love how, through my influence, the Scottish army becomes competent. Yeah, we did decide to do some more research into William Wallace, including doing our very first field trip of the podcast. Yes! I did put the pictures on Twitter, but we did go to see the Wallace Monument that's about 40 minutes away from us. Yeah. Where they do have his sword encased in glass that you can see. It was built in like the 1800s, early 1800s. Yeah. On this big hill, pretty much where the Battle of Stirling was, Mm. overlooking everything. It's implied that it would have been the hill that Wallace used to overlook the battle as it was going on. Yeah. But it was great to see this man that we're going to see idolized in this game. Because, I mean, you see the sword, it is five and a half feet long. It's taller than Jen. I mean, a lot of things are taller than me, but it's still, like, wild. That is, like, Final Fantasy proportions off sword. <laughs> yeah, it implies the man must have been at least six and a half feet, which in Yoldi times is a massive man. He's basically a giant, and the game's narration does make a point of emphasising this. Because, I mean, you know, you've got this, like, big, tall, strong, fighty man in your midst. You're going to idolise him. You're going to mythologise him. And he was. I did a bunch of reading about it to refresh my memory. And one thing that I read was that Scotland and England had been allies for over a decade. Edward I, before the Wars of Independence went down, was seen as a friendly face. When there was the crisis around finding an heir after King Alexander III fell off his horse, there was a whole crisis and fear of civil war because they couldn't find an heir. But they turned to him for advice on it. Like, hey, what do we do? And Edward, turning out to be one of the most ruthless monarchs that have ever been, rubbing his little hands with glee, looking forward to carving up Scotland from self and stealing our relics. So... Considering, like, the legacy that he's had and how he's become, like, one of the most maligned monarchs, I will be talking a good bit more about the history of William Wallace and the final analysis, but for now, (laughs) I will try not to delve too much into it. In the sixth level, Forging Allies, where it teaches you how to forge alliances, you've got to find three relics. You've got one in your town, one in your allies' town, and one that's been stolen by the English. We'll explain relics in better detail later in the episode. 
and your allies are not a particular town or borough they're just the scottish allies mm-hmm. the scottish allies are too nice for their own good and judging by what i've read of the history of scotland it checks out everyone loves the scots <laughs> but the english <laughs> Brothers and sisters are natural enemies, like Englishmen and Scots, or Welshmen and Scots, or Japanese and Scots, or Scots and other Scots. Damn Scots! They ruined Scotland! There's a whole bunch of English that love the Scots. It's, our relationship with England is pretty complicated, it's a messy marriage. Yeah, the Scots are mean to the English, but then everyone hates the English. We have English listeners, Sandra, be careful. I know, and I love our English listeners, but even the English know that they work heel. <laughs> we didn't really have three relics. That's a nice little thing for the tutorial to cover the different ways of recovering a relic. But we did have two relics of which is worth speaking of. The Stone of Destiny and the Black Rudicent Margaret's. The stone we crowned our king with, and the crown jewels, mm-hmm. and we still don't have them back. Not yet, no. Yeah, I mean, the Black Rood's lost forever, as far as we're aware, and the Stone of Destiny, uh, they've still got it. Yeah, and they actually just used it in the coronation. Give us it back, Charles! We <laughs> want our fucking stone back! Of course, the Holy Rood of St. Margaret gets lost in the shuffle, considering all the other jewels they've stolen from many people over the years. Give them back! Give us our fucking cross back, Charles! But they do finish the campaign on the Battle of Falkirk. Very fitting, because it was the last battle that William Wallace took part in. Yes. There is a ridiculous story we have to tell with this, though. So, in my final battle, once my Scottish Lord O.C. gets suited and booted, William Wallace comes in on a boat with his men as reinforcements to take over our territory. Yes, this is the first time we've actually got the William Wallace unit throughout this tutorial. You gave me a bit of a refresher on how to arrange my troops information. The tutorial doesn't really break that down, mm-hmm. particularly. If you've not got someone there to explain it to you, you may have to tinker about it a little bit before you go ahead with it. Yes, very briefly, each army can be set to a stance. Attack stance, defense stance, stand your ground, and no stance. On attack, they'll chase opponents. In defense, they'll chase them down a little bit, but go back to the post. Stand your ground, they'll only fight back when they are attacked, and in no stance they'll just stand there and take damage, even if they're attacked. Yeah, you can also get them to patrol and guard something, Mm -hmm. which is also pretty handy, but we didn't use that this time. No, we had all our troops outside of our gate ready for battle in the defensive stance, until Wallace's men showed up. So, trying to get Wallace's men all together, I immediately garrisoned William Wallace into the castle. For safety, yes. If he dies, we lose the campaign. You know, in chess, you protect your king. Mm. He wasn't our king, but he was our guardian of the realm. King of our hearts. Mm -hmm. It's like, kind of similar to what I did for a certain character in Final Fantasy VII, (laughs) where I didn't have them in my party to protect them from the inevitable. Yes, spoilers, Wallace dies. (laughs) Spoiler alert. So after I garrisoned William Wallace in the tower, I got all the soldiers' information, and I thought I'd accounted for everyone. So imagine my shock when I saw three of William Wallace's ward raiders storm over to the English castles <laughs> looking for a fight. Yeah, the English have a gate in front of their castle which doesn't let the opponent's troops in. 
But if the gate's open to let their own trips in, sometimes your trips can slip through. And that works the other way around too. <laughs> I tried to bring them back, but they didn't come back. They didn't get the memo that everyone else was gathering outside of my gates and going together. So they went straight from the boat to the English gates. Right, so at this point we thought, they're not going to be able to get back to the gate. Let's just wreak havoc until they inevitably get killed. There's only three of them. They're not going to survive. Let's just make their life hell until they get killed. Um, they destroyed the town hall. Yep, they managed to tank the damage that they get because town halls do have counterattack. They destroyed the town hall and all the people garrisoned inside the town mm-hmm. hall. I'm pretty sure they got a watchtower or two while they were there as well. Yeah, and I think they destroyed the barracks. Yes, they destroyed most of the settlement. <laughs> yeah, until we found that a part of their settlement opened to the river. We had some transport ships. We could send them back home in a ship and get them over the river, back to safety, get them healed. And they managed to get away with the entire thing. They came home, having destroyed most of the town, unscathed in time for tea. (laughs) A legendary tale of Scottish defiance, not witnessed again until Rangers lost the UEFA Cup final in 2008. (laughs) I am so proud of my country. (laughs) Another thing I found quite funny was that the English fortifications weren't built to consider that their river existed. But they didn't have any boats to defend it either. So you wouldn't even need the battering rams or anything. You could just put everything on a boat and just rock right on in. Yep, that's something that you can definitely do in this game. Always be careful of a sea invasion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I built quite a big army already, but they were all bested and outperformed by three chaotic evil world raiders. <laughs> they didn't need to do anything but destroy the castle, and then I won. Yeah. <laughs> Either way... We destroy the castle, and we complete the campaign, and win the Battle of Falkirk. Which is a little bit odd, when, historically, we fucking lost the Battle of Falkirk. We lost it really badly. Yeah. I cannot get over the fact that in my version of history, the Battle of Falkirk wasn't a complete shambles, where the English floor, like, rained arrows down on us, and we Mm -hmm. all died. Yep. William Wallace had to resign as guardian of the realm and beg Europe for aid before coming back three years to be hung, drawn, and quartered. But we won, thanks to three mysterious, chaotic, evil ward raiders with a penchant for getting into mischief, <laughs> sliding away out of sight before the UR Victoria screen freezes a triumphant moment. I don't take credit for their actions. It wasn't my military genius. It was them. They acted with their own volition. They sent King Edward's army to him to think again. <laughs> William Wallace lives happily ever after, and we never had to deal with English pretension ever again. And in this timeline, Mel Gibson gets done for crime and he never makes that movie. (laughs) That version of history, we had several other better films about our history. Yeah, in our version of history, Braveheart is portrayed by Robbie Coltrane. (laughs) And James McAvoy plays all three of the Wood Raiders. (laughs) The struggle will continue, but we have learned the ways of war. Now, it is the English who will know fear. With the first campaign complete, this is where I thought we should start holding our skills and fighting a few skirmishes. These are just generic instances. Maps you could set, and I saw fit for Jen to try and get an idea as to how the flow of the game 
properly works. I talked it through the first few games, but sooner or later I started letting you just play this game alone and stop advising you. For the record, we were playing easiest difficulty. We started with just versus two opponents, but then that's gone up and down as some of the skirmishes went on. With the map fully explored at first, so there was no like black fog around we hadn't seen, we eventually turned that off later. Yeah. And we kept trying different maps so Jen could see how the terrain can change depending on what you set it as. For the civilizations, I always had you playing a different civilization each time so you could see how they all differed. Now, we're not going to go through them all because it would just be far too long. Mm-hmm. But I think there's three main ways that the civilizations can change. Number one is the unique units. Each civilization gets a unit which is unique to them. The Britons get the longbowmen, Japanese get samurai, Vikings get berserkers and longboats, so some get two. Mm-hmm. But it is one thing that only they can have, and other civilizations can't make it. The second difference is build and research advantages. Mm-hmm. So different civilizations will have different strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So some will have stronger, for example, cavalry and more variety with that. Some will have stronger infantry or navy. It really does depend on who you play. Mm-hmm. The Celts, for example, you have an advantage with woodcutting. We do it faster. Mm-hmm. And we get better siege weapons. Whereas the Mongols get a buff where they don't lose population limit when they lose houses. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah, it kind of like makes references and uses their histories and everything as part of their gameplay. As well as their histories goes into point three, which is building and research disadvantages, where they don't get to build or research some things depending on the civilization. Yeah, some civilizations don't have stables. Yes, the Mayans don't have stables because there was no horses on the American continent. Yeah. Or there's some places that can convert buildings with their monks, and some can't. Yes, some civilizations get cannon weapons, some don't. And then there's things like the Goths, who can't build stone walls. I don't know where that came from. Yeah, I mean, as far as I knew, Goths love rock. (laughs) God, that's so bad. (laughs) The heavier the rock, the better. Yeah. So yeah, the game adopts historical figures and people as part of its aesthetics and strategy. It's very broad strokes, as Mm -hmm. we've covered, and it includes indigenous and eastern cultures that have been and are still exotified and other to this day. I personally can't comment on their use of these as, like, trivializes this or anything like that. Not really my place to say. I feel it's worth mentioning. I'm not informed when it comes to the history of everything behind it, so I don't really have much context. In the HD edition, you can read text files about them. There's a whole section about it, but I am still working through that. So yeah, if I get anything wrong or make any mistakes, that's why I thought I'd put that out there. Okay. So with our civilization we've chosen, we then choose the map. Now, there are different styles of maps to choose from in this game. Some are more gimmicky than others. Mm -hmm. But no matter your map, you usually start off with a few villagers, a town centre, and a scout who can start exploring the map. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier. Regardless of the map, though, each game usually comes down to four priorities. Number one, gather resources. These are the four resources we talked about in our intro, and you get them from the obvious places. You get wood from trees, 
gold and stone for mining and food you can get from fishing, foraging, hunting or farming. I will say about mining stone though, you have to find like stone mines, which are these, these white rocks. But there are cliffs. Can't we mine stone from a cliff? Yeah, I suppose. I guess it's the wrong kind of rock. Maybe. All these other priorities will cost resources, so you need those to do everything else on this list. Mm-hmm. Priority two, build your town and your army. You need the buildings to get the rest on. You usually build houses, which allow you to increase your population limit. A house gives you five more units. Yes. This sets your maximum amount of characters you can have. When you start the game, your town centre allows for five. And because you start with villagers and a scout, it usually means you can make maybe one villager before you have to start putting down a house. You just can't make more until you build more houses. Mm-hmm. Then you start putting down gathering points. Oh yeah, there is the mill for mm-hmm. farms and gathering food. Mm-hmm. Mining camps, mm-hmm. where you can mine stone and gold. Mm-hmm. And lumberyards, where you place them next to preferably a larger forest. If you're near a corner of a map, you're best placing your lumberyard there. Mm-hmm. Because if you place a lumberyard right next to trees on your wall, you can end up eating into your defences. Yes, what's really key with the resources in this game is they are finite. Yeah. You can destroy all the stone with the gold and lose the mine. And when you cut down a tree, it doesn't come back. Yeah. And with food, normally food also goes as well, but you do have the farm, which can be reseeded using wood. That's slightly different in its own class. Everything else is finite and you can't rely on always having easy access to Usually as the games go on, you start venturing further and further out to get stone and particularly gold. Yeah, yeah. Although you can also get gold from relics. So relics give you a steady accumulation of gold, Mm -hmm. depending on how many you've got. You can also get gold from trading and the marketplace, where you can basically just sell resources you've got a lot of. Like if you've got a lot of food from all the farms and you've kind of just let that keep going. You could just sell a bunch of it for gold. Yeah, I think the marketplace is the last saviour of getting resources when you've ran out of ones to get on the map. Yeah. This is also where you start building things to defend your town. Quite commonly, you start with a dock. Mm-hmm. That can be used to make warship that you can protect you by sea. You have walls and watchtowers, which the minute I get to the feudal age, I'll try and find out where to build my walls. Playing on an explored map when you're starting out is a good thing. Because then you can see where to build your walls. You can do it faster. Yes. With the regular setting, sometimes you have to wait for your scout to kind of find it all. We've all had that moment where we put a wall across like a certain border and then realise the border goes nowhere anyway. Yeah. But the idea being is that you want to put your walls down because enemies can't go through walls. You can't go through walls only if you build a gate. Mm -hmm. So it is a great way to lock off access to the part of the map you've claimed for your own. To get some of those later buildings, though, you have to complete Priority 3, Advance Through the Ages. We've talked about the ages already. You start in the Dark Age, with access only to build the resource camps we talked about, the barracks that can make militia troops, and the docks. Mm -hmm. The first age you evolve into is the Feudal Age. You can advance the ages at the town centre, and it will usually cost you like a set amount of resources, and you need to have two buildings of the era. Yeah. That's the way it makes sure that you're kind of progressing your town as you go through the ages. And so you don't try and get into the Imperial Age before you really kind of build your town up. Yeah, yeah. Getting past the Castle Age without building a castle. 
not the wisest idea they do take up quite a lot of stone and you can progress from there but it's not wise to not build a castle at all mm-hmm. when you get to the feudal age you can build archery ranges mm-hmm. and stables if you get stables yeah which most civilizations do you can also get a blacksmith which gives you perks for your other inventory and that market we were talking about earlier and the market mm-hmm. now you don't have to build all of these things to get by but you do need at least two yes and what's good about buildings is that they also increase your line of sight even if you've got the map all explored your enemies can still slip into the shadows yes you can only see what's in your range yeah if it's out with your range you can't see what they're doing Mm -hmm. now another thing that you can do as the ages go on is evolve your troops this is done through researching most of the buildings have researching that you can do at different eras yeah and each of the units kind of go through an evolution table a bit like pokemon i suppose yeah yeah and all troops you have of that type will evolve when you reach the next ability take the barracks and the militiamen for example he starts as just a man with a club but as you get into the feudal age you can evolve him into being what's called men at arms which are just men with a quite plain sword who can do better melee damage than the militiaman can. From there, he evolves into being a long swordsman, two-handed swordsman, and then finishing as a champion at the final stage, where he'll be in steel plating and carrying a massive sword. Yeah, sometimes you'll place priority and emphasis on different upgrades, depending on how you like to play and what units you like best. Yes, because there is upgrades that do things that just like increase the range of all archery or increase the speed of all militia units, that type of stuff. The university that you can get in the Castle Age, basically primarily on your defences and fortification. Mm -hmm. And I tend to go for those upgrades first. Yeah. Especially ones related to watchtowers because they are indispensable in my playthroughs. Two buildings of note that we have to talk about, especially from the Castle Age, are the Siege Workshop and the monastery Mm -hmm. so the siege workshop is how you make siege weaponry these are usually the only thing in the game that can take down walls quite well yeah now the castles do allow you to make trebuchets but trebuchets are a bit more finicky to use they're great for inside your walls as well yeah but if you want to have a battering ram to break down the walls or to destroy buildings really easily you get that from your siege workshop the monastery we talked a bit about monks earlier which i have to point out Get Coleman priests in our intro. That's not the right term. It is monks. Yeah. All the upgrades to your monks come from there and it is exclusively gold that they want. Yes. Most of the time. The monks can heal your units or they can convert enemy units. Yes. And sometimes enemy buildings, depending on the civilization, and sometimes can even convert enemy monks. So you can basically bring them over to your side. Yeah. The problem with monks is that they are very easily killed. Yeah, they've got no real defences. They're not supposed to be a fighting unit. Yeah, that's not what they're for. Yeah, I mean, the best way to deploy monks in my mind is if you're playing a game with multiple opponents and you defeat one in battle, they lose their town centre, they lose their castles, but the other buildings still survive. If you've got the ability to do it, you can send in your monks and convert the town that's left. In my most recent playthrough, I did just that. Mm -hmm. My ally did actually flatten the whole town pretty much, but they just left it. I don't think the Japanese can convert buildings, 
Whereas me playing the Aztecs can. Yeah, some civilizations get this ability, some don't. It's actually very handy because the Aztecs also don't get stables. Mm -hmm. So I was able to convert enemy stables and have a special kind of warrior. I don't remember what they're called, but transferring them from the stables that I have converted to my castle walls was just great. I was so pleased. My first time I was able to actually convert buildings and it was good fun. So you've been gathering your resources, building your town and your army, advancing through the ages in the tech tree. That puts you onto priority four, crush your enemies. Yes, this is the conquering phase we mentioned earlier. Yes, this is where you start working on your win condition. We'll go through the win conditions in a bit, but I think we should probably explain now how battles work. Yeah, good idea. Each troop in Age of Empires has an advantage against other troops. If you take our swordsman, the champion, for example, he's best at fighting spear throwers, known as skirmishers. Mm -hmm. And the scout's like the one you start off with, who become light cavalry. They are also better at wrecking buildings than some other troops, except for the siege weaponry. Mm -hmm. Spearmen, though, are great at taking down cavalry thanks to their long reach. If you see a lot of horses on the enemy side, you should send out your pikemen to sort them out. Mm -hmm. It's that type of idea. You should be seeing what your enemy is using, encountering with the right unit. Yeah, that whole know your enemy type thing from the art of war. Mm -hmm. All the types work that way. The light and heavy cavalry troops have an advantage against archers because they can get in close quicker. Archers absolutely wreck spearmen because they don't have any armour. Hand cannoneers can just completely mow swordsmen. And the catapults and scorpions, which are just giant massive crossbows, they work best against wrecking troops, but also very slow and are easily mauled by knights. Mm -hmm. So you have to be aware of the counterplay to an extent. There's a whole checklist of these, which if you do want to get into the next level of Age of Empires play, you need to be aware of what troops to use in which situation. I'm still learning this, actually. Mm -hmm. One thing about this game is that there's quite a lot to learn, but it means that there's lots of replay value. Yeah. You can keep improving at the game and building up the difficulty levels and reducing your treaty lengths or whatever. There's lots of room to experiment with what you like best. Mm -hmm. Now, to make your life a bit easier, one thing you can do is use keybinds. Yeah, you showed me how to do that at one point. So let's take your archers, for example. If you grab all your archers in one selection, hold control and press the one key, it means at any time you can press the one key and you'll suddenly select all those archers again, regardless of what you have currently selected. That really helps when you want to get into that counterplay. It is a little bit tricky, though, when you have to replace said units because you have to do the key bind for those everything again. Mm -hmm which is why I struggle with that in skirmishes. Mm -hmm. Great for campaigns when you've got an army already established. Depends on the player as to how well they manage to do that. And just to make it clear, when you're fighting in this game, it's usually other civilizations. Yeah. So they have the exact limits that their civilization has. Again, as you get more into this game, you start to learn the advantages of each of your opponents and know how to play against them. Yeah, there are a lot of civilizations to choose from. You won't be able to memorize them all off the bat, but you will be able to get an idea with more and more skirmishes. Yeah, games can be anything from two player to eight player. So you could have one opponent to fight, or you could have seven opponents to fight. 
There's also allegiances that we talked about, so maybe not all of them are your enemies you have to fight. If you have an ally, you get their line of sight, so you can see everything that they see, and they can see everything that you see. Mm -hmm. And your units can attack each other. And you've already mentioned about the markets can be used to send trading cards to each other that can increase your gold yield. You can also do the same with trade cogs in your docks. Mm -hmm. The trading units just have their own path that they follow. You don't really have control over where they go. You can tell them what market to go to, but that's it. With your allies, you can either set the victory as being an allied victory. So if you have no opponents left, then the allies win. Or you don't have to set that, which means at some point you're going to have to break your allegiance and start fighting your friends. Yeah, yeah. When we were playing games together, we set it as an allied victory. Yeah, just to make it a bit easier for you. But also because you're a lot better at this game than me. Not only were you wiping the floor with the AI, you would have also quite easily overpowered me. With all that laid out, there are three main win conditions to a generic game. Number one is the battle victory. Right. It's a very listy episode. Very, very listy episode. Yeah. That's just how the game is. Without a solid campaign mode to base this whole section around, I've kind of resorted to lists. Yeah, yeah. So number one is the battle victory. This is the most straightforward one. If you defeat all your opponents, town centres and villagers, they can't create the armies anymore. So usually if you destroy enough of your opponents down, they will resign and you win. Sometimes they'll be good about it and they'll be like, oh, very good, you were a really worthy opponent, well done. But other times they're like, fuck you, you cheated, I was robbed. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they really resign. It's like, you've destroyed one castle, well, I'm done. They'll just like flip the table and walk off and call you names. It's kind of funny, actually. Yeah, in an eight-player game, this can be such a time-consuming way to win the game. Yeah, yeah. Option two is the relic victory. Now, we've already talked about relics. There are these boxes that are dotted around the map from the start of the game. Only monks can pick them up and carry them back to your civilization. And they generate gold when they're in your monastery. Yeah. If you control all the relics, though, and can defend them for a set amount of time, the game calls them 200 years, but years in this game are kind of like five seconds. Yeah. If it's real time, literally, just not feasible. No, it's not Dark Souls. <laughs> But if you control every relic on the map and defend them for that time, then you win the game automatically. Same goes with building a wonder. Yes, that's option three, is the wonder victory. That looks very different depending on who your civilization is. Yes, it is a building you can only build in the Imperial Age. It takes a huge amount of time to build, even when you have 20 villagers working on it. Mm. But once the wonder is built, and again, if you defend it for 200 years, you win the game automatically. Yeah, I like this gameplay the best. The moment where you know that, well, I've got enough resources to keep going and keep defending it. I have enough military units to defend it. My walls are very strong and fortified. Great, I think I'm ready to build my wonder now. And a lot of the time I do end up securing a victory from that. And just to be clear, if you are in a situation where you have all the relics or you have a wonder... Everyone on the map gets notified. Yeah. And a countdown timer is added to the map. Every player knows that this is what you're trying to do. I will usually be gunning for you at that point. Yeah, even your allies. Yeah, you've had a game where, as you're building your wonder, your allies, who can get through your gates, went right to your town square and started building castles around your wonder. Rude. <laughs> I hadn't built anything on their territory, by the way. I was still like, oh! How dare you? 
<laughs> Usually I build a castle right next to my wonder. But these guys beat me to it. I didn't know what to do. So Sandro said, just build a lot of siege weaponry. Surround all the castles with said siege weaponry. Yeah. Your walls are strong enough. They're not going to stand a chance. Mm-hmm. The clock ran out because they were busy trying to floor one of their other opponents. Yeah. The ally that I had just decided that, you know, they were going to do all the attacking and I just reaped the benefits of it. Because <laughs> I don't take any joy out of crumbling an enemy's town. Unless they've been poking the bear, I don't like attacking. Yeah. That's why the Build the Wonder gameplay is so good, because you can just defend it and you don't have to attack them to win. So whichever one of those routes you take, once you've completed it, you have beaten the skirmish and you have won. The victory music will play, you'll get your score at the end, which is a bit arbitrary because, again, depending on what you've done, there is a winner of each game. Yeah. And there are other modes where you have to do something like defend your king or control a certain point in the map to win it. It really does depend on your map, your strategy. Mm. There are a few maps where there's a bunch of cool resources at the centre of the map and you've got to get there first. You just set up your mills at as many of them as you can and then just go to town. Just do that all before your enemies get a chance to. Yeah, and it's a great way just to sometimes just move those resources away from your enemies. In fact, one of the reasons why Age of Empires was considered such an easy game is because there is no mechanic in the game which allows for your opponents to generate resources that they don't have. Yeah. For your opponents to have wood, they must chop their own wood. Even the AI, regardless of difficulty setting. Mm-hmm. Which is good, because then there's no, like, bullshit wins that they didn't earn. That's exactly what it's for, yeah. I mean, you can do that with cheats, but I don't tend to like using cheats very much. No, we didn't really use cheats much in our playthrough. Not for our skirmishes anyway. No, we'll come back to that. We'll get to that. To close the gameplay section out, I thought we'd go back to the campaign mode and take on what should be the easiest mode of the campaign, say for the William Wallace tutorial. The story of Joan of Arc. Ah, yes, yeah, series two of Help! The English are trying to take our nation from us! Yes, it's been a hundred years since the time of Scottish independence and the English are still being dicks. It's a recurring theme with these guys, apparently. Yes. Not only do we get another chance to be antagonised by the English, we also get to be antagonised by a bunch of different provinces of France. Hooray! Yes, the Burgundians. The Burgundians, yeah, that was it. We are going to now defend France with the two things the French adore. The maid of Orléans herself, Jeanne of Arc, and comically French accents. <laughs> It is one thing for a band of dispirited soldiers to put their trust in a teenage girl. It is entirely another for that girl to be given command of the army of an entire nation. We were filled with pride when we heard the Dauphin's heralds pronounce Jean the Maid as commander of the army of France. So that she may look like a general, the Dauphin presented Jean with a great war horse and a suit of white armor. Jean instructed me to look for an ancient soul buried beneath the altar of a local church. I was skeptical, but not only did the men unearth a rusted blade, but we found that the sword belonged to Charlemagne, grandfather of France. I shall not doubt her word again. You didn't have a lot of fun with the campaign mode, did you? Uh, no. The Joan of Arc campaign was a massive difficulty jump, actually. 
I really knew how it felt to be Joan of Arc with all the odds against me. I didn't even have a five-foot sword and chaotic mode raiders this time. Yeah, there's a real problem to the campaign mode of this game. When I gave those four priorities earlier, you're usually doing them at the same time that your opponents are doing them. So for the most part, they're building up at the same time you're building up, and it feels a lot more balanced than fair. With the campaign mode, quite commonly, you are building a town while your opponents already have all their stuff ready. Yeah. To be fair, it does line up with history in the sense that they didn't really have that. They were the underdogs in that scenario. Joan of Arc had basically no military experience before she was given the calling by God. She was defending with the army of France, which wasn't nothing. It wasn't nothing, yeah. And there were already established towns there. It's the problem with the campaign mode is that because you're fighting enemies who are fully established, they can put a lot more pressure on you faster while you're still setting up troops. It can be really difficult to, for example, go through the ages because you have to keep making trips to fight their attacking troops. You do get a small army at the start of the game mm-hmm. and Joan herself self-heals. As long as you give her a chance to run away, when she's not being attacked, she can heal herself. Yeah, but the problem is, is that she's normally on cavalry, which are notoriously bad for chasing down the enemy. Oh, they love doing all that. But apparently that also checks out as well. Because her first time entering into siege warfare, she just decided, we're going to do an all-out attack. God told me to. Go all in. They're not going to expect it. And the commanders are like, yeah, are you sure about that? And she's like, yes, let's do it. Her charging in, not playing defensively, is apparently kind of consistent with how things were. Yeah, it is quite on brand for the maid. Yes. But that's the thing, like, compared to the William Wallace campaign, this is a lot more historically accurate. Yeah, yeah, because the Scottish forces also had the odds stacked against them. With this campaign, I mean, you start escorting Joan the Maid to Chinon to meet the French prince, a.k.a. the Dauphin. Mm. The next mission has you breaking the siege of Orléans. Yeah, which is what I was talking about earlier. Then you reclaim the Loire. You live out the failed siege of Paris where Joan gets captured. Yeah, your mission success is not destroying the English forces. It's getting to a marked objective. And the getting out of town to a specific part of the map is mission completed. And the final part, which just happens after Joan has been killed, is the troops fighting in her honour. Yeah, we'll get to that. One thing that I found quite strange was that there was a real absence of monks and religion in the gameplay. Considering that Joan was sent on a mission by God, I was quite surprised that that didn't play as much of a role. I thought the conversion ability would take part, considering who she was and her mission was just so captivating to the people of France. But I don't think there's any getaway for this. You didn't like playing this board. I found it difficult. The odds were so heavily stacked against me. My usual approach just didn't work. I physically couldn't do it a lot of the time. I had several opponents working against me at once. At England and also the 
Burgundian bootlicker traitors that were coming at me. I'm being oversimplistic, but that's how it is kind of framed mm-hmm. in the game. They never say it outright, but it's like, ah, uh, how dare you? You're betraying the people of France. <laughs> Usually that bad. There is a lot more micromanaging, which is not my strength. Mm-hmm. In the fourth part, you've got no choice but to build your fortifications and your base right in the middle of your opponent's territory. Imagine how hard that is when you have got a small army that's already been depleted from previous attacks. Mm -hmm. And also, Joan, keep an eye off her for two seconds and the enemy just decides to go through your walls. She'll just attack! In order to keep her alive, you kind of have to garrison her and just stop her from going into battle to make my life easier and to keep me sane. Yeah, there was a lot of saves coming to get through the campaign. A lot, a lot of saves coming. But I think it all came to a head with the last part. At this point, my patience was very, very thin. As thin as the troops that we are given at the start of each level before we get to any kind of villagers or town Mm centre. I was getting really, really irritated. And Joan had, spoilers, been burned at the stake, fighting on in her honour. Ah, La Pucelle! Ah, rallying cry! They're there with your general man. You get to turn a corner to see your forces. I was like, oh, right, okay, that's not too bad. And then you get to the other side of the river and you have what feels like a massive army just at the other side. They're all mowed down pretty easily. And I'm like, nah, nope, I'm done. Basically just resigned and stormed off. Yes, it was a dark day for France. But it was then that the rallying cry came up from the people. The words that would inspire for victory as Jen returned to her seat hit the enter key to get the text shut up and typed I R winner. Ah, uh, je somme gagnant. <laughs> yes, we used the cheat to finish the last part because we were fucking fried at this point. You had tried to help me and you really struggled with that as well. They're not easy to play. They're really not. So yeah, that's the only time we dabbled with cheats this game. And it was to complete the story mode. Now, I'm not going to call this a quest field or anything like that, because I will say, if you're buying Age of Empires 2 to play the story mode, you are missing some of the most fun in the game. And also, there's such a difficulty jump from the tutorial to the first campaign that it is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. You've got to train up for the campaigns. 100%, yeah. They're there for people who want a bit more of a challenge. Like, okay, right, I've played around with all these different kinds of structures. I'm ready for something a good bit harder with more restrictions. Something to like, you know, really get your teeth into because I'm tired of fighting easy targets. I think it's very interesting that the first two campaigns are about martyrs, nationalist heroes fighting for their countries at the hand of English tyranny. Well, like I said, English are the heels of history. <laughs> I mean, it's Joan of Arc and William Wallace have a mythos surrounding them and they're very sympathetic figures. Yeah. Joan of Arc campaign is a rough picture of how messy and complicated that period of time was. Different parts of France were ruled by different people, some pledging allegiance to England, some not. And the king taking advantage of that fractured nation and that potential for civil war 
There was that for this Wars of Independence as well. It doesn't paint a whole picture and it's very oversimplified, but as far as I'm aware, as much as there are some inaccuracies with the tutorial, <laughs> there's the same beats and is fairly faithful to what happened. Apart from um, the rallying cry of Je somme gagnon. Retreat! We must abandon France to the French! So from here, we'll talk about the aftermath. With the success of Age of Empires 2, Microsoft bought Ensemble Studios to work for them as a first-party company. Ah, yes, the Embrace stage. Yes. By this point, the business software site had already folded, and Ensemble Studios became the main part of the company. Two sequels were spawned from this game. A direct sequel, Age of Empires 3, which moves on to being more about the colonial age. Ah, okay, I was wondering where that factored in. And a spin-off game called Age of Mythology, which went into more mythological settings for the game. So more about the Greek gods or the Roman pantheon, that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Both games have the fans, but definitely not the success of Age of Empires 2. Yeah, you look at the definitive edition and there's still so many updates to this day and expansion packs and DLC. With the poor sales, I think it was clear that the age of Age of Empires was truly over. Ah. The team worked hard on other games including an RTS game based on the Halo franchise called Halo Wars. Oh, Halo got an RTS? Yes. Oh, cool. But the team were no longer considered to be as cutting edge as they were in the 90s. Microsoft closed Ensemble Studios before Halo Wars could release. Ah, the extinguish phase. Aha. Strangely, though, they didn't cancel Halo Wars. Instead, development would continue through other Microsoft teams and released six months after Ensemble's collapse. So they fought on in honour of La Pucelle. La Pucelle Goodman, yeah. <laughs> that development would go through Tony Goodman's new studio, Robot Entertainment, a team better known for the Orcs Must Die series today. What's Orcs Must Die? It's a subject for a future episode, possibly. Ah, uh, yeah, stay tuned. Personally, I've never played a single one of the games, but I probably should. This left one hidden path for the Dead franchise, though. One walked by Hidden Path Entertainment to revive Age of Empires 2 for the HD edition that we mostly played. Yeah, yeah. Originally, it didn't do so well, but they did two expansions that brought it into the sales charts on Steam that really helped show there was still a love for this game. So the later campaigns were maybe added in because there are, like, at least five different campaigns, right? Yeah. Lately, Microsoft has assembled a new team called Forgotten Empires, who would release Age of Empires 1 to 3 as definitive editions. Oh, it's 1 to 3 as a definitive edition? Yeah, each one's got its own definitive edition. They're all individual games. Alright, okay. Even getting to release a little game called Age of Empires 4 in 2021. Of course, I remember seeing a fourth one. A game which, I can confirm, does exist. Yes, it is a game. Honestly, I know practically nothing about it. Never felt compelled to play it. I mean, you've got Age of Empires 2 and everything in that to get through, so I can understand why you're not going to get to that for ages. I hear they went back to just covering Dark Age to Imperial Age. It's the exact same age as you cover in Age of Empires 2. There's better mechanics to it, but I just felt a bit cheap. I'm not going to get the Industrial Age of Empires. Yeah, I think you do get that in Civilization, though. Yeah, but what I want to do is have Age of Empires complete, which covers from Stone Age through to the Technological Age. That's the final 
evolution of that series surely i think they're probably waiting for them to kind of have this moment of yes this is the final moment of evolution for this series which i don't think they're ready for yet i mean i'll probably play for at some point it'll go down a steam sale or i'll eventually get the xbox game pass again i'll tell you what i think then but Age of Empires is not a series where I'm clambering for a sequel. Again, cannot emphasize enough like just how much there is in the Definitive Edition. Mm-hmm. There's even a section in the game for installing mods, which can improve on quality of life. Like, there's so much custom stuff that's been made by fans. It's insane. The series is certainly fondly remembered, but the Age of Empires series is not one I'd expect to see light the gaming world on fire ever again. Yeah, which is a bit of a shame, but Civilization, as far as I'm aware, is the more popular of the two. It is, yeah. I mean, the series has came back from death, so it's clearly something people want to keep around. Yeah, which is good. I can get behind that. I'm glad that the games are there, but I'm not waiting for the day they announce Age of Empires V. Yeah, I mean, I've got plenty to do as is. The English are angry that you destroyed their outpost. They're coming to attack your village! So, after all your experience of... Farming, chopping, mining, and killing. What do you have for your final analysis? This game is part of a tapestry of humanity's tendency to oversimplify history in its attempt to weave its narratives. Mm -hmm. We remember history as tales of great heroes, tragic or epic wars, blood feuds and political intrigue of monarchs and nobility who see the common people as pawns and whatever bullshit they're embroiled in. That's very true. It does plug into the great man version of history. Yeah, explain to the listener what you mean by that. When it comes to how you retell stories, there's kind of two schools of thought. History from top, which is the great man theory, or history from below, which is the people's history. With the great man theory, we tell history through the decisions, actions, and responsibilities of notable men, leaders, generals, heroes, villains, etc. People's history is where we tell it through how it affected the common man, troops, social, economic, remembrance, etc. You'll find that through time, we remember the great man version of history first, and the people's history is a lot more recent. Mm -hmm. In what way? You're not going to hear the story of William Wallace told by what it was like to be a Scottish commoner living under English rule. You're going to be told the story of what it was like for the commanders who led the rebellion. Yeah. We remember history in the great man way because it's captivating. We mythologize people like William Wallace and Robert Bruce, so it's almost easier to remember and pass down. Mm. The common people especially relied on oral tradition, which can emphasize some things like William Wallace being a man of the people. He was minor nobility, but he was just powerful enough to have a bit more of a social standing, but not quite as powerful enough for the common person to be able to relate to him and look up to him. A lot of his history is told by second-hand accounts or stories or poems or speculations on what little information there is left. Mm -hmm. He was a captivating figure, someone heroic to rally around when Scotland was losing hope and our very own all-is-lost moment. He generated a mythos because that's how people remember him. But we can never really know who the real man behind the myth was. Because of the framework the Age of Empires 2 tutorial has, it misses out on quite a lot. 
the wars of Scottish independence didn't end after William Wallace. The fight for our independence raged on until our forces, led by Robert the Bruce, won the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, over five years after Wallace was executed. Yeah, we did mention about how we actually lost the Battle of Falkirk. Yeah. Which is where the campaign ends. We tried to tell it in a way that it's like, oh, the Scots won and they always remembered William Wallace. Yeah, we remembered William Wallace because he died for his country. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least with the Joan of Arc campaign, they got to her death. But again, that's how the game's framework goes against history. Mm-hmm. The first war ended after the Declaration of Arbroath, which was signed in 1320, where it was basically said, yes, Scotland is our own country, England, leave her alone. <laughs> But there was another war for independence after Robert the Bruce died, when his heir was too young to rule, and there was another power struggle. Oh yeah, there's wars of independence going as far as the 1700s, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we remained an independent country until we signed the Acts of Union in 1707. Yeah, that happened after the Panama Project, a real all-is-lost moment. Right? Tell me more about that. Yeah, that's when Scotland tried to create a colony in Panama and put a large share of the country's entire wealth into the project. And when the colony failed, it left Scotland destitute. So that was around the time we signed the Treaty of Union, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That dissolved our parliament and we didn't get that back until 1998. Scotland's history and relationship with being part of the United Kingdom is complicated and messy. I don't think the campaign does the best of jobs of getting that across. Let's be fair here. To call it Scottish history is completely unfair. Right. It's not trying to be history. It's trying to be a tutorial with a fun subject. That's true. Still did a better job than Braveheart. That's a very low bar to clear, though. (laughs) But I do get what you're saying. I shudder to think of someone whose only knowledge of the story of William Wallace comes from that campaign. Yeah. They're going to get a very incomplete picture of what we hold up as our national tale. Yeah. We're guilty of this as well. We're having to summarise key parts of our country's history into a single talking point, pretty much, and leave out important details for the sake of time. Absolutely. And if you're a listener who's wanting to know more about Scottish history, Age of Empires is not a place to learn it, and this is not a place to learn it. If you're looking for a podcast on Scottish history, go listen to the Scottish History Podcast. Yeah. Think of these things as a springboard for your own learning journey. There's a lot of nuance that we've missed out on. And the campaigns do something similar. Not just for William Wallace, but I imagine most of the campaigns have this problem just by the virtue of what the game's trying to do. Age of Empires 2 tells a version of history through their own framework. Mm -hmm. They most likely got the Battle of Falkirk deliberately wrong just because it's the tutorial mission. 100%, yeah. You're supposed to come out of it feeling proud and hopeful for future skirmishes and campaigns. But it is also the only other major fight after the Battle of Stirling that you can use as a title for what was going to be your final test. Yeah, I mean, when we retell the history of the Wars of Independence, it generally ends at Robert the Bruce becoming King of Scotland. The tutorial's very simple and it doesn't have room for the Battle of Bannockburn, sadly. It also, apparently, doesn't have room for Andrew Murray, who is frequently overlooked in tellings of history, despite the fact that he was William Wallace's right-hand man. 
Age of Empires 2 doesn't really have room for it because it's about William Wallace and introducing, oh, hey, there's this battle of Bannockburn that William Wallace isn't in. I mean, he did do Joan of Arc, but it doesn't matter. Admittedly, I also understand that you don't want to be too repetitive. Mm -hmm. We're going to tell the Joan of Arc story where it ends with her death and a whole mission in her name. If they did that again for the tutorial, it may have been a bit too samey. And skip over other battles. Mm -hmm. Also, the campaign battles don't happen as they would in history because that strategy is based on what the game engine can provide for you. Mm -hmm. In the Battle of Stirling, the bridge was destroyed to stop more people getting across and lots of soldiers drowned in the river. Mm -hmm. But you can't break a bridge in this game's engine. 100%. They have been told to type up a version of Scottish history that doesn't include the letter T. Like metaphorically speaking. Yeah, metaphorically, yeah. Yeah. It's like that. They have to tell a version of the Battle of Stirling where the bridge can't break. Yeah. But also, like, they don't want to railroad the player because that's not the point of Age of Empires 2. The campaign can be a bit railroady, but I also understand that it's very hard. Like, imagine the Joan of Arc campaign mm -hmm. and the Siege of Paris. You can't end that campaign with Joan of Arc failing the battle and then all the ships are alive running away. They had to write this narrative where they get into the town save some civilians and escort them out. Yeah. You have to take that liberty just because that's all that works in the engine. Mm -hmm. There is a scenario builder where you can build your own scenarios. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. And I can't see how you could do anything other than something like that. Because all you can do is have the get to this point, get to that point, defeat this enemy. You only have certain tools at your disposal to use. Yeah. Like, the civilizations and all the skirmishes are also very oversimplified to fit the parameters of the game. They've got stats to reflect how they were in battles mm -hmm. and where they were geographically. So civilizations like the Aztecs aren't given cavalry because they didn't have horses at the time. Yeah. And civilizations that couldn't have encountered each other in the real world in these skirmishes playing the same map. Yeah, there's always going to be that element of taking liberties. Yeah, for absolute sure. Part of the problem of streamlining and oversimplifying history in general is that so much of our history ends up being lost. Mm -hmm. Some people along the way decided what was worth curating and what wasn't. Because histories of minorities, indigenous cultures, queer and women's histories, and people's history have been and still are being erased, rewritten and overlooked, we're missing out on a great deal of vibrance and knowledge of ourselves as a species. And I think we're worse off for it. And another disadvantage of this is that the peoples of these times and places are homogenised and oversimplified. I've always wondered what the inner lives of my villagers and troops would have been in that sense in Age of Empires. What are their family histories? Like, what, like, stories do they tell each other? What are the myths and history? How is their culture and outlook on the world shaped by my actions as an empress? That's not within the parameters of the game because that's not what it's for. No. Games like this give us a small taste of the power that these monarchs have. A bit like chess, you know, you're strategizing the battles. Most of them saw their subjects as just pawns and nothing else. Mm -hmm. 
most people aren't thinking about the intimate lives of the king and queen pieces. No, the bishop is just a piece on the board. It's not a person. Yeah, thinking about the individual pieces and their inner lives isn't the point to the game. Like, what, they're going to create a mechanic where you have to explain to the family of your starting scout that their husband or father or son died? You're not playing the game to learn the true horrors of war. Absolutely not, no. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, I love this game. I enjoy the puzzle and the strategy, but it is kind of fucked how I ended up seeing the people in them as being expendable. Mm -hmm. In saying that, I always feel a bit sad when each game's over. It's just a screen grab of your winning moment. The world just freezes solid, basically dead, never to move again. You can't do anything with anyone. It's a bittersweet feeling. Mm. But one thing I hope you take away from my points here is the gaps that I leave out. There'll probably be listeners who will highlight things that I've had to miss out for time or gaps in my knowledge. And I cannot emphasize enough that we have not and cannot paint a full picture of any given history. But the beauty of this fact is that you can learn more yourself. There's a whole section of gameplay in the HD edition of this game with information about each of the empires you play as. Mm-hmm. It's like a cheeky wee page, just a summary, but it's still pretty cool that they've got that. Legions of historians and archaeologists and scholars and linguists have worked tirelessly over the years to preserve information for you to read. And we are writing our history now. We live in an era where we have access to more information than we've ever done in our lifetimes, and it's at your fingertips. How cool is that? Absolutely, yeah. I sometimes get very overwhelmed by just how complex our society is. Sometimes I can find it a bit anxiety-inducing. But it's also really fascinating and exciting too. Looking at history, all of the people's histories and all of the great men's histories and everything that's been and will be, it gives me hope that humanity has survived for tens of thousands of years. We were just as diverse and interesting then as we are now with rich inner lives and vibrant cultures and family histories. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we can take time every now and then out of our days despairing over the state of things to celebrate some of that. Yeah, we all have to take those times where we just sit down and we tell the tale. By that time we saw the broken wall and decided to repair it by Bolden. Bolden. That really is a philosophy to live by. Bolden. I think we've now gathered enough resources and we can now move into the listener submissions age. Ooh. We got one story in. I did try to post for more on the AOE2 subreddit, but that post got insta-killed. Ah, that was a bit of a shame. But we did have one story submitted by a good friend, Nasty Nate, over at the Elder Trolls podcast. Thanks, Nate. I played Age of Empires 2 religiously. We will occasionally have an Age of Empires 2 Definitive Edition game night where eight of our friends come together and battle for supremacy. Right. One of my all-time favourites. For civilizations, my usual go-to was Vikings and Lithuanians, for sure. I've played as Vikings before, that's a good choice, but not played as the Lithuanians yet. I did try them, they're quite good. Great land units. Right, right. But now in our group of friends, we're not allowed to pick our civilizations. 
What does that mean? We all have to get random sieves and play those for each map. Ooh, that spices things up. Yes, it does. Sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. Mm. And it's something that we didn't get a good chance to try, which is that this is incredibly fun in multiplayer. Yeah, yeah. That would be something interesting to look into in the future. Yeah, just getting eight friends together and seeing what happens can be a lot of fun, but I will warn you, they will absolutely just destroy your defences. Yes, um, I will probably lose those games. (laughs) Unless I ally with someone more powerful than me. (laughs) See, here's what we do, right? I'll go the Goths, you can go anything that can build walls, I'll do the offence, you do the defence. That's a good shirt, because I hate doing the offense. I don't do it unless I absolutely have to. You're not an offensive person. No, or at least I like to think I'm not an offensive person. Yeah, you say that now, but I remember when you were calling that sweet little child Pokey a prick. He was a little shit, to be fair, though. It was the best word for the job. I'm not sorry. <laughs> Let's just go into final thoughts in three gens. So for last gen, did this game live up to your expectations? And do you feel it holds up as a classic? I didn't really have expectations going in because I didn't really know what to expect. Mm -hmm. But I did have a lot of fun with it. And it wasn't quite as obtuse as I thought it was going to be. There were no natural disasters or rebellions that could have made the game a lot more difficult. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. It's one of my favourite games we've covered so far. Really? Mm. That's a surprise. I would not have put this game as one of your favourites. There's more replay value in this game, mostly because, well, of the skirmishes, the free play mode. Most of the games on this podcast that we've covered have been story-based, so they have a beginning, middle and end, and there's not really anything to do after the story ends. Yes. Whereas this game has endless campaigns, pretty much, Even if you finish the base game's campaigns, there are other expansion packs, especially in the Definitive Edition. Mm -hmm. I really do think it holds up as a classic because it's a pretty accessible real-time strategy game. Mm -hmm. Like, if I didn't have huge amounts of problems playing it, then I think a lot of people might be in the same boat. Might be a good gateway drug into more complex real-time strategy games. But there's so much to do in this game. You're probably not going to want to move on to anything else anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So for current gen, what are your highlights of the game? And is there anything in the game which didn't work for you? The flexibility of the skirmishes makes this game eminently replayable. Mm -hmm. I think I've mentioned this before, but you can choose from whatever variables you want, like difficulty, map size, how much resources you have at the start of the game. Pretty much anything. You can increase the challenge in further replays as you go, and you can do as many of them as you want. Mm. The campaigns after the tutorial, though, are a real difficulty spike. If you don't know what you're getting into with that, it can be very frustrating. Mm -hmm. But I was far too low a level to play the Joan of Arc campaign. I think that's fair, yeah. Because there are a lot of curveballs, and if you're more prepared for that sort of thing, then you're going to have a better time with it. But I really struggled with it. Once you're more familiar with the systems, I would say, yeah. Yeah, which is an ongoing process, actually. They are for people who want something a little bit different. Space up their gameplay a little bit. Yeah. And finally, for next gen, although you have gave the answer away already, 
would you recommend it to a newcomer? And are you interested in trying other games in this franchise? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. As much as the HD editions campaigns are a bit more charming, that bad voice acting does a lot to endear you to the game. Yeah. The section of extra reading is also a really cool feature. It's a bit of a shame they don't have that in the Definitive Edition, mm -hmm. but I'm more drawn to the Definitive Edition because of the quality of life fixes. Yeah, it's the one that's more fun to play, no doubt. Your starting scout can auto-scout, so it'll explore the map, but most importantly, choices are a lot more clear. How so? Well, for choosing your civilization, you get a breakdown of the different stats and advantages and weaknesses of each civilization that you play. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. And what kind of game strategy is recommended for them? So some are better at cavalry, some are better at navy, some are better at siege weapons. You get a look at what unique infantry you get for the map type. You also get more of an idea of how to approach the strategy and what you're supposed to do on that map. Right, so then I'm going to have to ask you then, should a new player play the HD edition or the definitive edition? I'd say the definitive edition. Right, okay. Because of those quality life fixes that I just said. In the HD edition skirmishes, I was going in blind. I didn't really know what to do. And having these things signposted better is a really good thing, especially mm. for newcomers like me. There's already a lot to do in Age of Empires 2. So I don't think I'll be moving on to a different real-time strategy game anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But it would be interesting to see what the other games are like. Oh, I mean, one thing that doing this episode has done is it's strengthened my conviction to cover other RTS games. We are doing Command & Conquer. We are doing Civilization. Mm. I also do want to go through some more management-style games because you seem to like that element of this game. Yeah, like being able to build your town and watch people prosper. So I think we may have to also touch into things like SimCity. Yeah, which I love The Sims too, so that might be right up my street. If these games are on special offer, I think I might buy it, but it depends the price. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And we must now end the Age of Empires. It has been 200 years since we built our wonder, and now we have won. And although the age has ended, I do want to keep up the spirit of battle. Though so let's just keep it one-on-one -on -one this time as we return to the world of fighting games. Yes! Last year, in that ridiculously long double bill that we did, we looked into the two most popular 2D fighting games that defined the genre. This time, however, we're going to make the move to the third dimension for what has become PlayStation's defining fighting game brand and play Tekken 3. Round two, fight! Oh yeah! We want to feature your thoughts and experiences with the Tekken franchise. Tell us your favourite versions, your favourite fighters, or just let Jen know why this is the best fighting game for you. And send them over to starterquest at gmail.com or you can reach out to me at starterquest on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash starterquest. For now though, thank you very much for listening especially with the audio issues we had earlier in this episode. Just know that we now know how to use the system and we won't be making that mistake again. Yeah. I can only ask that you be kind and judge us on our full body of work if you do leave a rating review on your podcast platform of choice. Yeah, our sound quality is usually a lot better than this. I'm actually a writer of sorts. 
<laughs> I have a website, jenhuswriter.com, which has a list and links to all the poems and stories that I have had published. And my other writing projects, you can find out more there. My chat book, Keep On Spinning, is available to buy on my website or through my publisher, Dreek Books. It's a little book I'm very proud of, so I hope that more people get the chance to read it. You can also find me on my social media, and if you've got any fun stories or anything like that, you can contact me too. I'm on Facebook, Jen Hughes Writing, and on Instagram at Jen Hughes Writing. I would like to thank Protricity for this episode's theme song, Realms of Africa, available over at ocremix.org. So, until we get ready for the next battle, it will be a goodbye for me, Alessandro. And a goodbye for me, Jen. Quest completed! Wallace has come.